and welcome to The Dine One Six, a food podcast about Sacramento. I'm your host, Max Connor, and today I have the absolute pleasure of sharing my conversation with Chef Brad Checky. Chef Checky is the co-owner and executive chef of Cannon in East Sac, as well as the recently opened Franquette Coffee Shop and Wine Bar in West Sac. Now, if you pay any attention to the food scene in Sacramento, then you're likely familiar with Cannon. It is absolutely one of the most popular and revered restaurants in Sacramento. It holds a Michelin Guide Bib Gourmand Award, which recognizes restaurants doing exceptional cooking at an approachable price. And in 2021, it was named as one of the 50 best restaurants in Sacramento by the Sacramento Bee. Checky is a Sacramento native who got his start by taking classes at a local community college and built his career all the way up to being at the helm of a Michelin-starred restaurant in Napa before returning home to Sacramento to open Cannon. So a couple quick notes for this episode and for the podcast as a whole. The first is that Chef Checky and I had such a great talk that I decided to split the episode into two parts. I just couldn't bring myself to chop out 30 or 40 minutes of our interview because we covered so much good stuff. So the episode you're listening to now is being released on Friday, April 22nd and we cover Chef Checky's career up to right before he opened Cannon. Part two of this episode will be released on Tuesday, April 26th, and we'll cover the opening of Cannon, surviving a pandemic, his family, and new ventures like Franquette, which opened just a couple months ago. That brings me to my next announcement, which is that I will start releasing all my episodes on Tuesdays instead of Fridays. Well, that'll give you more time during the week to listen and to consider where you might want to eat that weekend. So with that bit of housekeeping out of the way, I'm happy to bring you the first half of my conversation with Chef Brad Checky. Brad Checky, thank you so much for agreeing to come on the Dine One Six. It's really great to have you here. Of course, it's great to be here. Yeah. So the, I always like to just jump in and, and ask people first, you know, food oftentimes for a lot of people is so tied to, to childhood. So what role did food play in your life growing up as a kid? Was it important in the house or was it? Yeah, I think in my immediate family, my mom and dad, they both worked and, you know, I was kind of a latchkey kid growing up. So it wasn't necessarily the focal point of my childhood, although my grandfather was the chef in the family. Mm. And so he owned restaurants and like truck stops and diners and and things like that. And okay. He worked at a like a Hofbrau type place in Reno called the Stein back mm-hmm. in like the 70s. Wow. Um and he was uh he had uh one leg. And oh so, no way. Yeah, so he he figured out a way to <laughs> That's extra hard work with the just one leg. Kitchens, yeah. And so he was kind of the chef of the family and so as we had family gatherings and stuff, he was always the cook. And so kind of inspired me through seeing through spending time in his restaurants growing up and and then just being around him as he got older he cooked a lot and so um, it was something that I kind of always helped out with but it really wasn't the food part of it that kept me in this business but the the food memories are something that you kind of like always kind of lean to in in your style right it's like I tend to cook a little heavier a little more masculine mm-hmm. um, that comes from him yeah. So you've got almost deep in your roots, kind of the greasy spoon. A little bit, yeah. Uh, style. Totally, yeah. yeah. Way back when. 
That's cool. What did he do? All the kind of major holidays? Did he do Thanksgiving and Christmas feels, or were just kind of like whenever you guys would get together as a family? Actually, he wouldn't do the major holidays. Okay, that kind of fell on like my mom, my grandma, my aunts, cousins. They did a lot of the major holidays, and I think that just was about how we all, you know, we'd play cards and we'd play horseshoes in the front yard or whatever we would do, and mm -hmm. so. My uncles and my uh, my male cousins, we'd all you know, they'd all go drink beer in the front yard, and right. and so uh, the holidays were more like that. But like every Sunday, every Saturday, like he would be cooking, and we'd have a pork roast or a pot of soup or chili or whatever it was. But he he was doing that all week. Okay. Um, and then on the major holidays, he kind of took the day off. There you go. Yeah. So. <laughs> And I imagine that's true for most Which chefs. Which I try what, to do I was as gonna well. Say, what, I was just going to ask you, what, yeah, what professional chef wants to cook a Thanksgiving dinner? Like, yeah, I, yeah I, no, thank you. I always tell uh, my family it's either like, let me do all of it or I'm doing none of it. Right. Because, yeah. you know, cause that, especially with those major holidays, everybody's got like a memory. Yeah. Right? Like they're like, that, that's not right or that's not right. Yeah. You know. Uh, everybody, you know, right. Some people hate pine nuts in the stuffing or currants with someone. Just some people just want, I want stovetop, cornbread, cheesy stuffing. Don't put any wild exactly. rice or anything weird. You know, yeah. So don't fry the turkey or or don't smoke the turkey. You know, we're going to put it in the oven. And we're right. Gonna, yeah, all that stuff. So, <laughs> it, you know, fight that battle. Yeah, right on. Um, so when did you get into cooking then? I know you started taking some cooking classes at American River College when you were in high school. Was that yeah, what I made was, you want to do that in the first well, place? Well, um, I think... For me, it was about my parents saying, you got to go do something. Mm. You know, like I didn't have a plan. I, and I took like, I took AP classes in high school and like I was on a college path. And by the time high school was finished, I was like, I'm done with school. Mm. You know, and I think I was done with more of the traditional schooling. So then I was like, okay, well, I'll go to AR and I'll do some general ed and I'll figure out how to take some, I'll take some culinary classes. Those will be easy. Okay. And, uh, turned out having a bit of a knack for it and like really started to enjoy it and really started to appreciate kind of the artistic part of it um the organizational part of it like all of that stuff is what really spoke to me and so i i kind of ended up doing this like competition team through american river um through the american culinary federation and, and american river college uh they chose a group of us under 21 years old to mm -hmm. go to Las Vegas. Okay. To compete national to international competition. Um, kind of what has evolved into kind of the Boku store. Uh, this was for youth. It was a youth program. Okay. Um, and so this was like the American competition to see who would advance to like the international European uh, in Europe uh, competition. And we ended up placing second in that. Wow. Um, and so from there, like that's where my career kind of started. I got some opportunities to go to like the Broadmoor in Colorado Springs and work with some chefs that we met at that competition. Um, so I did that. So I left home at 18 and uh, moved to Colorado and was an apprentice at the Broadmoor. And it was great. I mean, it was an old school brigade kitchen, okay. chefs yelling and screaming, throwing stuff. <laughs> you know, I worked in the bakery. So I worked like the 4 a.m. to 7 a.m. or not the sorry 11 p.m. to 7 a.m. shift and okay or the 4 a.m. to like 10 p.m. 10 a.m. shift it was all over the place yeah um but it was like a real like that was what this business was at the time mm -hmm. so 
Um, I did that, and then I decided that I was ready to come home. How long were you out there in Colorado? Um, almost a year. Okay. And then I was ready to come home, so I found a job when I came back here. Actually working for uh, Vladi Divots. Oh, really? At uh, <laughs> Tunnel 21 in Old Sacramento, yeah. But during my time there, I broke my leg, so I had to take some time off. And a couple of buddies of mine were like, hey, we're going to move to Bar Harbor, Maine, and work in a pizza shop there for the summer, and then we're going to go to Europe. I was like, sounds good to me. Like, I'm in. So I took the time off, recovered from my, my broken foot, moved out to Maine, still in a cast, and <laughs> slung pizzas out there for the summer. It was amazing. It was the best summer of my life. That sounds um, awesome. Yeah. So we saved enough money. We lived in employee housing and just kind of like hung out and partied and went to the beach and, you know, hiked and, and worked all summer and then took off for Europe in that, that following October. Was it good pizza? It was amazing. Was the place it? This is called Rosalie's. Yeah, it's right in like downtown Bar Harbor, which is like its own little island off the coast of Maine. Okay. What style pizza was it? It's like, you know, a Neapolitan style. Like yeah. not like wood fired, like super thin crust, but it's like an like an kind of like a normal Americanized kind of Neapolitan style pizza. Okay. Gotcha. Um but really good. I mean, they just did a good job and it was like one of those things where I was t- I was just telling somebody the other day. It was the kind of place where you ordered like a can of tomato puree, mm-hmm. and then like you would never even heat it up. You would just add spices to the cold <laughs> tomato, and then like, but that was the sauce that they made, and yeah. it was delicious. And like they didn't do shredded cheese; it was all sliced mm-hmm. cheese, just stuff like that, you know. And and but we'd sell four, five, six hundred pizzas a Dang. night, and there was just three of us pizza cooks, and then somebody who rolled out the dough for us, and we'd be up there just tossing the pizzas in the window <laughs> and. It was crazy. That sounds fun. Yeah. I um, loved it. All right. So you went to Europe, and then you came back to Sacramento after the, the Europe trip. Well, yeah. let's go back to Europe. So did you get to experience food culture in Europe when you there, or was it just beer culture at that point? Like, um, <laughs> I've definitely been to both. You know, the, the I, I didn't get to spend a lot of time, like, eating out. Mm-hmm. I didn't have a lot of money. Sure. So um, I would definitely just kind of, like, travel around and see what I could find to eat that was experience driven. And then like spent some, a little bit of time in kitchens. Yeah. Uh, but I was just terrified, you know? So it's like, just keep your head down and don't get in trouble. Sure. But I'd say that like that kind of travel opened my eyes to the world of food, mm-hmm. you know, and especially to be in Europe where countries are like States, you know, they're close together. And so you see that very regionalized changing of how things are done. Yeah, um, which I still take a lot of inspiration from today, and and you find how easy it is to blend cultures that way too. Right, right. When you really think about borders, um, so I that's what I took away from my time there. Uh, and when I came back from Europe, I was ready to go. You know, like I was ready to actually commit to this as a career. And mm. even though I had done school and I had done apprenticeship and I had worked in a five, you know, the Broadmoor's a five star, five diamond resort. Okay. So I'd worked in nice places and and been cooking, but I hadn't really given any thought to what life past 24 was going to be. Yeah. So um, I got back from Europe. I think we were, I was like barely 21. Came back here and worked for a little while. There was a catering company downtown called A Shot of Class back in like the early 2000s, late 90s. They had left the downtown space and moved out uh, to Carmichael. So I went to work for them. 
and met a couple guys, uh, chef and sous chef. Uh, Chris Jackson still has a he still has a catering company here in town. Okay, he was the executive chef, and so uh, I met him, and they gave me a job, and because it was mostly a catering company, and we just did dinner service for our regulars on like Thursday and Friday nights or something mm-hmm. like that, Friday and Saturday nights. They gave me a little room to be creative, and uh, I never looked back from there. Okay, you know, I was like. That was it. I got. I had a chance to kind of start creating, which young cooks don't often get. So after being back home and cooking in Sacramento for a while, Chef Checky said he felt he might benefit from a little bit more formal training, and he decided to go to the Culinary Institute of America in upstate New York. During that time, he had an externship with Chef Bradley Ogden in San Francisco, He went back and finished his school, and then worked in New York City for a little while. And you might think, all right, he's worked in nice resorts, he's worked for a good catering company in Sacramento, he's been to one of the best cooking schools in the country, worked for one of the best chefs in the country in San Francisco, worked in New York City, and he landed back in Sacramento. And I asked Chef Checky if he'd considered going back to one of the big, famous food destination cities whether it be New York or San Francisco or somewhere in Europe, and how he ended up back in Sacramento, building his career here in this city, before eventually moving on to other opportunities. I mean, there's a the common theme throughout my career is, you know, coming back to Sacramento. Mm-hmm. But for me, New York specifically was not a city for me. It was too alive all the time. Mm-hmm. And... Just my, the circumstances I was in, like I'm like taking the subway, I gotta leave my house three hours before I gotta be to work <laughs> to get to work on time because I gotta take two trains, a bus, and then walk three blocks. You know, right. so like, and then you're doing that at three in the morning. Right, you're, you're already probably of, working a job that's 14, 16 hours right. a day. So, <laughs> so that was miserable for me. And then, um, and then San Francisco, I loved, I loved working in San Francisco, um, and I would have gone back there. Uh, but my mom sent me this article like Patrick Mulvaney opening this restaurant. And she's like, this place looks great. I'm like, okay, cool. Well, let me see what that's about. Mm -hmm. So I was home and I was like weighing all my options, right? I was going to go to like LA or San Francisco or at the time Portland. Yeah. You know, I was considering all those things. And then, um, I walked into Mulvaney's and knew one of the line cooks there and they hired me on the spot. And so it just kind of happened. Right. Like, and then I got some roommates and then I, I was had a life now. And right. You're I just in to, it before you knew it. Yeah. And I'm just in it. So uh, then I moved down to Midtown and then, you know, like <laughs> the whole thing, you know, this is like 2006. Yeah. So it's like everybody, you know, Midtown's thriving. And yeah, so I worked there for almost two years and then um, had that little gap at, at uh, it was called uh, La Perla was the name of this bistro. And then I got word that the Citizen was opening. So, you know, it, it just kind of like, it wasn't that I, that one of the big cities weren't for me. I mean, New York really wasn't for me, but sure. like the big swing at the restaurants at the time, like I didn't pr- really give it much thought. I was like, if I'm working, like I can kind of figure this out. And I thought I was on this path of like, I'll spend a year here and I'll spend a year here and I'll go back to Europe. And I'll, mm-hmm. I thought all of those things were going to happen. Um, but that's just... You know, I got the job at the Citizen, 
the money kept getting better and the profile kept raising and yeah. they were getting a lot of recognition and we were getting recognized outside the market. Michael Tui was doing a great job, you know, pushing the PR engine down the road. So I felt like I was in a place where I had a lot of upward mobility and like didn't need to go work in a big city. Yeah. That I was working in a restaurant that was being recognized in big cities, but it was in Sacramento. Yeah. And so for me, it was, it was the right move until it wasn't right. Until like I was up for that executive chef job against Oliver while I was running the hotel. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so here comes like this outsider comes in and he's like, interviewing for my job and that was a hard that was hard i was only i'm 20 i was 27 28 at the time yeah um and so that was hard uh but oliver became is, is to this day one of my best friends and um has taught me an incredible amount about all things restaurant related but that that's where it kind of topped out was once Oliver kind of took that job as the executive chef mm-hmm. at the Citizen, I looked at everything else in town and I was like, okay, that's the job. At the time, Randall was still the chef at the kitchen. Yeah. So, yeah. And, and like, I think oh, Mike Tiemann was at Ella. Okay. And so, like, that was it. It was like the kitchen and Ella and like everything else was chef owned. So you had like the Waterboy and Mulvaney's and. All chef owned Perigary's was, you know, Kurt Spataro had the big job there and that was it. So the next job available was my job, like the second in command <laughs> at the Citizen. Yeah. And so as I looked at the hierarchy and see that everything above me wasn't available in town, I, f- I was like, I got I to gotta figure something out. Okay. I got to get out of here. So that's when uh, I got a job offer to move to Cleveland. As an executive chef, opening a 500-room hotel with three food and beverage outlets and a $20 million a year budget. Yeah. And I had no idea what I was doing. Yeah, so let's get into that because I know <laughs> I've read a little bit, some interviews talking about that experience. And that's uh, obviously a whole other deal to run that big. I mean, just from an operational standpoint, an employee standpoint. Yeah. Right. What, you know, what was the good, the bad, and the ugly of that experience? Well, the good was the process. So I got on board pretty early on in that process. And so I managed the opening budget and I managed construction and bought and purchased all of the equipment, Mm. uh, hired all the people, you know, wrote the pre-opening menus. That process is invaluable. Yeah. And it's something that I still do to this day as I open my own restaurants or consult for other people or whatever that is a process that like not a lot of people get to do and that I feel like has kind of become a niche for me that like I enjoy it. So that part of it was great. I didn't so much like when you have a hotel that big, you have to have a little bit for everybody. Right. Sure. And so I didn't much like managing like a 24 hour room service operation. I didn't much like cooking for like sports teams. Okay. As as cool as it sounds like, Oh yeah. You know, like, (laughs) You know, the, the Raiders are coming to town because we had this big hotel. We we took on all of the sports teams, yeah. uh, Major League Baseball, basketball, and football. And it's just, it's not fun cooking. You know, it's it's like they need uh, two tons of pancakes for the offensive linemen today. And you're like, oh, my God. <laughs> 
so I didn't much like that. I liked we had we had a very cool farm to table steakhouse, and I had a three thousand square foot butcher shop and a, a pastry kitchen and a and a huge banquet facility, and that stuff was really fun to manage. But like when it came down to the other stuff, and then I wasn't cooking in a hotel that big. Like I wore dress shoes yeah. to work, you know, because you have chefs in every outlet and. They have to do the cooking and my jobs to make sure that they have the people and the equipment and the numbers are right and all that stuff. And so I was a little young for that step. Sure. I was I, I think I turned thirty just before we left for Cleveland. And so I don't know. It wasn't for me. And the weather there was not for that's this a rough California that's a rough boy. change yeah, from a, a Sacramento boy. Yeah. We moved there like the year of the polar <laughs> vortex. It was like <laughs> It didn't get over a, over zero till like April. Oh man! And uh, it was not for me. Yeah. So, I mean, luckily, I was offered a job. Like I wasn't gonna leave there just because I didn't like it. Mm-hmm. But I was offered a job in in Napa in the in the Valley at Salage, and so it was a good opportunity. Yeah. Um, and so I was able to jump on it. Wow. So you got. And this is, I've read it's Soul Bar. Is that part of Solage? Yeah, so Solage is the resort. Okay. And it's a Auberge um, Resorts Collection Hotel. So Solage is the hotel, and Soul Bar is the restaurant, is the Michelin starred restaurant. Yeah. Uh, formerly Michelin starred restaurant. That's there on property. Okay. Got it. So when you, you got the opportunity, and they'd won, they'd picked up a star in, I think, what, 2008? Yeah. So around by the there time I got there, I think they had had six cons- five five consecutive stars okay uh, five consecutive one stars and then i took over as chef de cuisine of the restaurant soul bar and as as chef de cuisine we kept it two more times yeah and then brandon sharp left in i want to say it was like 2015 so then that final one i was executive chef and then i also we won the um forbes five star Oh, wow. Uh, for the hotel during that time as well. Okay. So what was the pressure of that like moving into, you know, total, two probably in a lot of ways totally different types of pressure, particularly when you're talking about big multi, I mean, Solage is a resort in an expensive area as well, but to be at a Michelin-starred, like really fully food-recognized right. restaurant from the hotel of managing, you know, $20 million budget, what was it like to move back into food but at a place where the pressure to be just a level of excellence that, you know, you really have to uphold. Yeah, I think part of that was refreshing. Definitely going from, you know, 484 hotel rooms and a Starbucks and Mm -hmm. two restaurants. And, like, that was daunting from a volume perspective. Going to Solage, 88 hotel rooms. Yeah. Right? One restaurant. Doing weddings. Doing all that stuff. And so that was great because it was it was back to food. Yeah. So that part was great. The the standards, right? And like I don't know that I was ever verbally like said like if you don't achieve these goals, you are fired. Right. Right. But I felt that pressure to where like you know Michael Bauer's top one hundred was coming out in the Chronicle or the Michelin Guide was coming out was getting announced today or whatever it was, I was in it, you know, like yeah. on my phone <laughs> at like five in the morning, like refresh, 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 yeah. like trying to figure out if I was going to have a job, so to speak, 
when I got to work that day. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that there's a little bit of like anger that comes with something like that. And you hear those horror stories about chefs. And what I learned there from Brandon was that you don't have to be like that. You just have to be really, really, really well prepared. Mm. And as long as you trusted that, then the rest of it came. So if I followed the system, and we, I still use a version of this system in all of my restaurants today. I use them when I plan the Tower Bridge dinner. Like all of that. It's like be prepared, have the right lists, have the right checklists, develop recipes that feed those checklists, develop ordering guides and systems that create synergy and really at the end of the day make sure if I'm prepared and all the product is there all the equipment works correctly and you've scheduled the right amount of people like the cooks will do that work and it really and if you can do it that way the cooks are happy because all any cook wants they don't care about being busy all they want to know is that they have what they need to do their job yeah it's when they don't have those things that they get salty and they want to quit or they walk out, or they fight with each other, you know, if they don't have everything they need. So once I learned that, for Brandon, he was really good at it. He was always very calm and never very angry. That made things a lot easier because what I found is it gave me the time to audit. It gave me the time to taste. It gave me the time to create. It gave me the time to be present for my employees. And so that was the refreshing part about going to Solage. Yeah. Because it was a higher standard, but also within that standard, there's a reason that these restaurants get to these levels. And it's just not because the chef is a jerk. Right. It's not some (laughs) mad wizard in there who's just all over the place screaming and yelling but throwing out amazing plates. Right. Yeah. There's a system there. There's there's just like any other business, right? Like there's administrative systems that are in place that allow these places to go. And so I learned that there. And- I saw it immediately as soon as I said it. Like, I was like, I'm never going to do this much different. And to take the bones of that and create the way that I do things now. Yeah. Um, and I use technology like, you know, cloud-based systems. And I give access to all my employees, all my recipes on their phones. I'm not worried about anybody stealing anything. That's like, cool. It's about, they're just colors on a palette, you know? Yeah, sure. So. So as Chef Checky said, that experience at Soul Bar really taught him that a good chef was someone who was not only creative and artistic, but mostly someone who was really meticulous and organized. But I was curious to hear more about the Michelin star system and what kind of pressure that can put on a chef and on a kitchen. A pressure that he still feels today with Cannon holding a Michelin Bib Gourmand Award. So we talked a little bit about how the Michelin star system even works and what it really means for chefs and for the restaurants that hold them. Well, so I wish that I knew how the star <laughs> system worked, to be honest with you. It would make everything a lot a lot easier. Um, I think one-star restaurants are what we recognize as like a four-times-a-year special occasion restaurant, right? Okay. Uh, like a... Ella or a Mulvaney's, right? But, like, they don't have one star because whatever reason, 
but those are the kind of restaurants that one star restaurants are. And now there's always that buffer as if you're a one star and you're becoming a two star. Two star restaurants to me are adventurous. They're evolving, but they're very well done, very well executed. The service is exceptional. Generally, they're smaller, right? You don't see a lot of like large 120 seat two star restaurants, right? Mm -hmm. Like that one stars, you see that. You see big restaurants, one star. So two star restaurants generally are like a tasting menu driven, very controlled environment. Now, three-star restaurants can be a bit bigger, but are a bit fancier, a bit more polished, a bit more formal. They're once-in-a-lifetime type restaurants, mm-hmm. cooking at a level and staff educated to a level that surpasses the guest. Because that those are the those are the pillars in our in our cooking community that are are the temples, right? Yeah. Like those are the places that we all look at and aspire to get to. So Michelin is taunting. You know, Canon has a bib gourmand. Right. Not something that I want to lose. Yeah. Um, so there is that pressure every day to achieve those goals. I make very clear to my staff that that pressure exists. And, and if it's for you, great. If it's for not for you, then also great. Like, it doesn't change what the restaurant is. Franquette is not that. Franquette's a coffee shop and a cafe. And, mm-hmm. like, we do exceptional food there. Elena does a great job. But I don't know that it's ever, like, a Michelin-rated restaurant. Yeah. And so, you know, I think that you can get caught up in it all. But at the end of the day, the restaurant has to stand on its own two feet. Yeah. And... If you either did the work or you didn't do the work, and I don't even know what metrics that the Michelin Guide is looking for. They say it's all about the food. So that's what we try to do. We try to do the best job with food we can and, and provide great service. You know, our, our restaurant isn't like the most polished put together. It's not like the French Laundry, right? So it's like still just a busy downtown restaurant. Mm-hmm. So there's only so much we can control in that arena too. Yeah. So I think it's fair to say that like Canon isn't a two Michelin starred restaurant. You know, it has a bib gourmand. One day, could we do a good enough job over the course of a year to get a Michelin star? Maybe. Is it something we're going for? I don't think that's the right way to ask the question. Yeah. I think the right way to ask the question, are you going for a Michelin star, is I hope that one day we can have one. But we're just trying to make sure that tomorrow we have enough food to serve every, you know, like it's not like you can't consciously be like my goal. The top of my mountain is that star. Yeah. You have tomorrow to worry about. And then once you get it, you have to keep it. That's what I was going to ask is because it's almost worse. (laughs) You get that call in 2016 or whatever. I was in the executive chef. What was that feeling of getting it? And then just sort of, having to turn around and go. Well, the problem is I never got the call (laughs) because they didn't have my phone number. You know, like Brandon Sharp had left, not like abruptly, but like quickly. Uh And so I found out, and some years, so of the, see, this is the third Michelin season at Canon. And I went through, so of the six Michelin seasons that I've gone through as a chef, the last four, 2017, 19, 20 was weird. They didn't really release a guide. And then 21, 
those last four, I did not get a call. Hmm. Um, 2017, or it was 2016, I guess, is the, the star year. But at Soul Bar, I found out in the Chronicle. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> or on Eater or one of those. Like, we were just sitting in, the, we were just in my office. Trying to like, find it, see when it was getting refresh, posted. Refresh. And, and finally, it was posted that we had kept the star. So that's how I found out. Yeah. Was through that. And then, you know, it was it's champagne and... But I always find that they're the worst services, too. It's like the days you find out you kept your star. <laughs> I bet, right. Like, it, it was that way every year. We'd always, because we'd have champagne at break time. We'd congratulate everybody, and we'd all shake hands. And and then we'd go on break, and everybody would be, like, calling their parents and or their wives or whatever. And then we'd have a terrible dinner service. <laughs> and I would get so angry. But those, like, those, those days are stressful. Yeah. And you're proud, but, like, you immediately go to, like, now I got to keep this thing. Mm-hmm. And that part is almost, to me, like, I, I don't know how to feel about it because is it better to have gotten a star and then lost it or to have never gotten it at all? Right. Because I feel like they'll congratulate you, but then when if you if you lose it, they're going to be like, well, what happened? Yeah. It's like nothing happened. <laughs> like. We spent all this time trying to get it, and we finally got there, and like, now we can't ever take a breath, and that's that's hard. Hmm. And so, I to be honest, I love love our our bib gourmand at Canon. I feel like it suits us. It gives us the space to be creative. It gives us the space to test without testing can be expensive, and it can be a long process when you're waiting to put your absolute best foot forward Mm -hmm. so we get a little room to like work we test a lot of recipes at canon before they make the menu yeah but we also are able to tweak things along the way plate this different change this garnish add a little more salt those kinds of things so got it yeah it's 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 hard yeah but i also like it i think it's a good north star you know, it's a tool that I can use to motivate the staff. Sure. And it's a tool that I can use to motivate myself and my business partner and my, you know, my GM. And it gives us a, a, a direction. Yeah. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Dine One Six. Look out for part two of this episode to drop next Tuesday, April 26th, when Chef Checky and I will get into all things canon cooking vegetables, surviving the pandemic, and much more. If you like this episode, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and take the time to give it a positive review. It really helps out the show. Or just send out a text to some friends, tell them to listen, and then make a plan to go to Canon and discuss. Any way you can spread the word, I would really appreciate it. Follow me on Twitter and Instagram. Both handles are at dine 16 And if you have ideas or thoughts about the show, shoot me an email at max at dine16.com. The opening and closing theme music are by my brother-in-law, Mark Owens. The Dine 16 is a production of the Hear Me Now studio in Citrus Heights. So until next Tuesday, when we hear more from Chef Checky, eat something you love with someone you love.